0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 50, The Maastricht Treaty Alone.
1: Hey hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of Modern History Together at Last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Get your ball flushed when we get our balls flushed. And order a bottle of tequila when we order a bottle of tequila and you won't have to wait long for that lovely booze because it's episode 50. This calls for a celebration. But what I'll do instead is talk about season three, episode 15, Homer Alone, which first aired on February the 6th, 1992, another two-week gap between this episode and the last.
0: And as a distraction from the UK's impending destruction as we hurtle towards a no-deal Brexit, I'm going to take everyone's minds off it by going back to where the EU started, as on February the 7th, 1992, the day after Homer alone first aired, the Maastricht Treaty was signed.
1: Hooray! Oh, that'll be fun. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at org. So, February the 6th, 1992. Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one then? Well, it was still wet, wet, wet. Oh, better get used to saying that. Uh, And with another of the more obscure two unlimited tracks in at number two, let's stop in with my old favourite Kylie Minogue at number three with... Give me just a little more time. Look, it's episode 50. I get a treat, all right? Yeah, that's solid. That's a good song. A very quick note on number four, though, which was the Pasadenas with I'm Doing Fine Now. They're a close harmony group with a sound that took obvious, though welcome, cues from old soul records. But I mainly mentioned them, as I know I can therefore mention that one of the members was called Rockin' Jeff. And that'll make Tim Worthington laugh, so jobs are good, really. (laughs) But back to Kylie. We last heard from her way back in episode two, would you believe, when she was plying her trade with Tears on My Pillow and making the jump to cinema in The Delinquents. So where is she two years later? Well, would you believe she's released two albums in the intervening time? Firstly, Rhythm of Love, which featured arguably her best single of the period, Better the Devil You Know. I can only imagine we missed that one because I'd have to stop and lavish a fair bit of praise on it. And the album that this single is taken from, which is called Let's Get To It. Not you'd have known she was releasing records if you looked at the press coverage of the time, which focused pretty much solely on her relationship with troubled in excess frontman Michael Hutchins. There's a slight problem with the latter album as well. It was her first not to reach the UK top 10, which is a bit of a problem where it's her largest international market aside, obviously, from Australia. The first single from the album, Word Is Out, also missed the UK top 10 for the first time. But both subsequent singles, including this one, hit the top five, to a collective sigh of relief from Stock and Waterman, but not Aitken, who had already departed. Indeed, Stock would leave in 1993, and Kylie, who was tiring of the creative constraints placed on her by the production team, would soon sign for Deconstruction Records, which was a more EDM-oriented, underground leading label signalling the beginning of the end for the Stock Aitken Waterman sound that had dominated the UK charts in the latter half of the 80s. The song itself was originally released by the soul group Chairman of the Board in 1970. It was their debut single, and actually featured its own record company intrigue, as it was written and produced by the Holland Dozier Holland team, who were originally behind some of Motown Records' biggest hits, such as Stop in the Name of Love, You Keep Me Hanging On, and Baby Love. But after a bust-up with Barry Gordy, they started their own label, Invictus, where due to legal issues, they were unable to use their own names, using the pseudonym Edith Wayne and the name of their associate Ronald Dunbar to temporarily become the Wayne Dunbar writing team, to whom this song was credited. That version went to number three in the UK charts and the US Billboard Hot 100, and Kylie's version peaked at number two in the UK and absolutely nowhere in the Billboard Hot 100, as was the style of the time for UK and Australian artists on the whole. If we carry on following The Simpsons, it's very likely that we'll see some interesting turns for her career, including, eventually, a massive US hit. So it's very much au revoir rather than goodbye to Musminog. Back to the episode. The US viewership was a Nielsen of 14.2, which is approximately 13 million homes, It was 25th overall for the week and the highest rated show on Fox. The production number was 8F14 and the credited writer was David M. Stern. We've already discussed him in episode 14, Transnistria Gets an F. The chalkboard gag was, I will not spank others. No, no, I'm not touching that one. (laughs) And the couch gag was the family forming a pyramid. I feel like I've seen that one quite recently. But what actually happens in the episode? Well... The Simpsons are going to have a chaotic chase through the house. Or rather, the two members of the family you'd expect to do so are doing so, smashing a lamp that Marge will not clear up, and then does. We then see Marge's effectiveness as a home-runner and the annoyances she has to put up with, along with the lack of help and appreciation she endures, along with the physical and emotional labour of that particular project, not to mention Homer's ungratefulness and the lack of baloney. If none of that sounds funny, it's probably my fault. I can see where the laughs are meant to come from, but I'm just a killjoy when it comes to houses with an uneven work balance. So until we get to the spa, there's not much here for me. Your enjoyment may vary, and that's completely fine. I'm just going to be a big old sourpuss about Marge not getting any help. Okay. Anyway, already laden with tasks, Marge is then given a bowling ball to get flushed out, in that a beer bottle cap is stuck in one of the holes. Rather than telling Homer to go f*** himself and stop being a pathetic little baby when he winds about having to use alley balls, she agrees to take it to Nick's for this act to be performed, just as the kids miss the school bus. We get a hint of Marge's incandescence as she drops Bart and Lisa at school, but we're straight to the supermarket where Marge talks us through her ridiculously specific shopping list. Tom, can you remember the items she names?
0: Oh, good. Um, fruit leather. Yep. There's some sort of weird imitation orange drink. I can't remember the exact details of it. And crusty Brand Duck Sausage Pizza?
1: Yes. Fantastic. I'll, I'll give you three on that. Um, I had to mm. look up what the second item was. I knew it was imitation orange drink, but apparently it's Tree Fresh imitation orange drink, according to the scripts that I looked at.
0: Tree Fresh. That sounds like something you put in your car. yeah. I'm guessing it's meant to be a brand
1: name, but it, it could also be Tree-Fresh. Who, who knows? Mm. Which is, In fact, it's probably that, because that's even funnier if it's imitation. <laughs> so there we go. Yeah, I'm sticking with that. Sticking with that. Anyway, at this point, I expected her to pocket a bottle of Colonel Quickie Mart's Kentucky Bourbon for Grandpa, but that's season four, episode 21, Margin Chains. Although that's only a season or so from now, so I don't feel too bad about my confusion there. <laughs> she then goes to Nick's Bowling Shop who, as it turns out, don't do ball flushing, but do recommend the other Nick's bowling shop on the other side of town, who haven't flushed a ball in years. Driven ever closer to breaking point by a stress-inducing run of radio programmes, the final straw comes when Maggie, who has cleverly been seen to be playing up throughout this entire opening section, just in the background, spills her drink. Marge stops her car across both carriageways of a busy bridge, and she'll move no more. As usual, the police are powerless to help. Fine to punish, but powerless to help. And the resulting queue features a fair few Springfield luminaries. It's enough to summon the media, and Ken Brockman fails to interview Marge despite the presence of the Channel 6 Sky Harness. This means Lenny, Carl and Homer see the incident on television, and Homer thinks it's a right old laugh until he sees who's involved. He at least rushes to the scene to talk her down, making in the process a promise to do whatever it takes to make things better, and she duly leaves the car, only to be arrested. But of all people, Mayor Quimby interjects, preserving the chick vote by liberating her and declaring it Marge Simpson Day in the city. After all that lip service, Homer believes everything is wrapped up in a neat little package. But Marge is still stressed, and having seen an advert for a spa called Rancho Relaxo on the TV, informs Homer that she wants a holiday on her own. And so it came to be that Bart and Lisa went to Patty and Selma's, but Maggie refused to go, and Homer is forced horror of horrors, to look after his own child. Marge boards a train to Rancho Relaxo for a total change of pace, soundtracked by a super set of songs about clouds. Bart and Lisa hate life at Patty and Selma's. All tongue sandwiches, clamato, blackhead guns, gigantic braziers, and snoring. Homer's getting by, albeit in a very bachelor-esque way, with Barney round for a drinking session and all the baby food he can eat. But Marge gets the sweetest plum for once, as she's shown what the rancho can offer in an introductory video from Troy McClure, who you may remember from such films as Today We Kill, Tomorrow We Die, and Gladys, the Groovy Mule. This includes a look at the movies on offer via relaxovision. Tom, can you remember what today's selections are?
0: Felmer and Louise. Yep. The Happy little El- Happy Little Elves meet fuzzy snuggleduck. Yep. And the erotic awakening of S. Three out of three. Ugh. Which I'm sure must have been featured on EuroTrash at some point.
1: <laughs> it's a perfect score for episode fifty, Tom, congratulations. <laughs> Her life temporarily becomes a lazy whirlpool of massages from Mexican med school dropouts, Sundays in the bath and bottles of tequila. But meanwhile, Maggie is missing Marge so much that she escapes the house and goes looking for her, putting Homer in a terrible quandary when Marge announces she's coming home and all Barney can offer is omelettes with two kinds of cheese. Homer contacts the Department of Missing Babies but Maggie is eventually found by Chief Wiggum atop the roof of Phineas Q Butterfats, seeking comfort with a giant promotional ice cream cone with a Marge-esque hairstyle. A relieved but bedraggled Homer duct-tapes her into her baby seat, swings by for Bart and Lisa and greets Marge at the train station. The family are so glad to see her that they all share a bed that night and agree to make any necessary changes, which they then don't do. Ever. Bit of a sour note to end on, but there you have it. Now, Tom, I would be interested to know your thoughts on this episode, because I I think I got in a mood with the family, and that might be dragging down my my general perception of this one. I I don't think it's as good as the last few that we've watched, but I I may just be feeling mardy about the whole thing. What do you reckon?
0: Well, I can understand where you're coming from, because this is one of the things I keep saying about The Simpsons. It's a parody of real life. And in real life, people are bastards. They are. They are selfish. They are whiny, and that's what Marge goes through in this episode. Personally, I think this episode is great. It was one of my favourites growing up, and they've really nailed quite advanced stuff, like like use of incidental music, blocking, really good direction, that kind of thing. And some of the jokes are great. Although it does have its little surreal moments. My favourite little surreal moment is when arnie pie drops his bagel what is all that about he just suddenly goes oh sorry i've dropped my bagel and then you see it falling and that's it it doesn't land on anyone it doesn't get eaten by a bird or anything it just falls for a second it's really weird I I would
1: say I I think you're right about the use of uh, use of incidental music in particular. the the feel of this episode is bang on. You you really you take Marge's journey with her in some ways. It's very well made in that respect. And the the point where um, uh, she's in the bath and disappears under the water for a second and comes up with her her hair not up for the first time since since literally the first flashback episode. It's it's symbolic, and the the Rancho Relaxo scenes in general are just at such a such a studied pace that yeah it's okay I've come back around on it now yeah mm-hmm. I think you know once, once you <laughs> once you put aside your problems with the general behaviour of the family yeah. it's, it's a lot easier to stomach and yeah I think there's some good stuff here definitely
0: yeah you you do see a good example of Homer being an absolute pig as well with his what's the matter sweetheart not getting not getting enough of the good stuff at home. Which isn't the only sex reference in the in the episode, which isn't bad for a family show.
1: No, they they definitely start sneaking them in at this stage. Um,
0: and and why not?
1: Why mm-hmm. not? A yeah. bit of
0: blue for the dads, as they Absolutely. Used to say. Absolutely. First time I ever heard "snuggle" used as a euphemism, anyway.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so there was a character debut in this. Would you believe? Um, can, can can I guess? Because I
0: because because I think I know who you're going to say. Is it the just stamp the ticket man? No, no. no. Um,
1: okay. It's, uh, it's Arnie Pye. Ah. But that does come with a quick disclaimer. His voice has previously been heard in Season 1, Episode 13, Some Enchanted Evening. But A, he was called Bill Pye in that episode, and we infer that it is the same character due to his accent more than anything else. B, this is his first on-screen appearance. And C, I think we'd all rather forget that Season 1, Episode 13, Some Enchanted Evening, exists in the first place. Hmm. Um, So even if he had debuted in that, I'd probably still give him the benefit of this uh, very short rundown. For for Arnie, is a a simple character. He is the traffic reporter for Channel 6, often seen in his helicopter, which often crashes. Because of his Sky-based reportage, and his surname being Pi, his segments are quite obviously called Arnie in the Sky. His main character beat is that he harbours a great deal of venomous jealousy towards his colleague, the anchorman Kent Brockman. He will succeed in temporarily replacing Kent twice. In season 18, episode 22, and indeed episode 400 of The Simpsons, and the last episode to air before the release of The Simpsons movie, that was called You Can't Always Say What You Want. So he replaces uh, Brockman in that after he's fired for swearing on air. It happens again in season twenty-eight, episode five, "Trust but Clarify," when Kent is found to be lying about his experiences in war zones. But other than that, I really don't have anything else to say about Arnie Pie. So, so there we go. He's a he's a traffic man that doesn't like Kent and occasionally gets his due. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about it. Um, also. Bit of character development, and a bit of important character development in in my eyes. This is the first episode where Patty and Selma's love for the Richard Dean Anderson television series MacGyver, which ran from nineteen eighty five until nineteen ninety two, is specifically mentioned. In fact, and they couldn't have known this at this stage I don't think. The final episode of MacGyver would air a mere three months after this first aired. Ooh. We'll doubtlessly discuss their fixation a bit more in the, in an episode not far from here, so I'll leave that hanging there for now. If we somehow continue doing this far enough, Richard Dean Anderson becomes Simpson Cannon in Season 17, Episode 17, Kiss, Kiss, Bang, Bangalore. So you can all look forward to that. It is a bright spark in a not very good episode. Time for some Did You Knows? Indeed. The opening chase is modelled on my absolute favourite Looney Tunes series, Roadrunner, right down to the freeze frames and the faux-Latin names, which for clarity are Bart as Brattus don't have a cowus, and Homer as Homo Neanderthalus, which then caused me to have to look up Neanderthal Man and make sure that this wasn't their actual taxonomic classification. (laughs) And it wasn't. They were Homo Neanderthalensis, as far as I can find out. Although, to be honest, if you said Neanderthalus, I wouldn't correct you. Mm. I mainly mention all of this so I can raise a hypothetical glass to the greatest physical comedian of all time, Wile E. Coyote, who frankly deserves to devour that smug, no-good roadrunner. For further reading, please consult the song Wile E. Coyote by The Mighty Caesars. This segment was sponsored by Acme Rocket Boots. <laughs> we hear an advert for a restaurant called Shakespeare's Fried Chicken at one point, set to the flagshagger national anthem, Rule Britannia. This is the chicken place that catered the pivotal meal for Grandpa's demotivational talk to Homer in the flashbacks in Season 2, Episode 12, The Way We Was. And I believe we've also seen the restaurant at the mall once or twice. Finally, the song that plays when Homer rings the Department of Missing Babies is Baby Come Back by Player a soft rock classic that went to number one in the US Billboard Hot 100 in January 1978. I particularly like this being used it makes double canon sense that Homer would recognise the song. It's right up his street based on what we know about his 70s listening habits. That's all I've got, Tom. Do you have any memeable moments
0: for us? Well, not really, because surprisingly for an episode of this calibre, it's got tons of great jokes. It's really well written. But there aren't really any memeable moments. So there are a couple of personal ones, though, personal to me. So I do have this bad habit uh, when I'm driving. I will sometimes shout, especially if I'm in the car on my own. And sometimes I like to shout if I'm stuck in traffic. Come on, come on, I've got a body in the trunk. (laughs) Also, Homer singing... Go to sleep and good night. Na, 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 na. Go to sleep and good night. May your Christmas days be nice. That is something I've sung to my daughter, complete with a good night, my pork chop. <laughs>
1: uh, well, you know there's 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 value in in personal resonance i would say even if we even if we haven't found something we could post on uk simpsons
0: but don't worry the next episode is absolutely chock full of them
1: fantastic and we'll, we'll probably find there's no debuts in that one so there'll be plenty of time for it right then um oh
0: do, do we have to yeah sorry it's it's it... It, basically, nothing else happened in February 1992. It's 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 this or nothing. So, the Maastricht Treaty. So this is the treaty that laid the foundations for the European Union, as we know it today. And writing all of this just got me very very depressed. <laughs> so, I'll I'll do my best. I'll do my best because it was a time where Europe was kind of well. Boring. It was what diplomats and bureaucrats worried about. So people were asking questions like, will this legislation be adopted and will this treaty be ratified? Not, will there be enough food and medicine? Like we're saying in September 2020. So, anyway, let's start by taking a look at the origins of the European Union. Of course, up until the Second World War, vast chunks of the world were controlled by the European powers. The sun never set on the flag shaggers of the British Empire, France controlled Indochina and huge chunks of North Africa, and even the Netherlands and Belgium had colonial possessions. See our last episode for a bit more on the Belgian Congo. Now, World War II changed all that. The Nazis held out until the last man, leaving most of Europe in ruins, both physically and financially. It became clear that in order to recover and to counter the communist threat from yeast, the countries of Europe needed to work together. Winston Churchill himself knew this, and even called for the creation of a Council of Europe while World War II was still raging. In 1946, a mere year after the Second World War ended, he gave a speech at the University of Zurich, where he called for the creation of a United States of Europe. On May 5, 1949, the Council of Europe was created following the signing of the Treaty of London. This organisation is famous for writing the European Convention on Human Rights which all members must adhere to. The convention established the European Court of Human Rights, which today applies as far as Greenland in the west and Russia in the east. After the foundation of the Council of Europe, the next major event in the history of European integration was the Schumann Declaration. This was made by the French Foreign Minister Robert Schumann on May the 9th, 1950, where he called for the production of steel and coal in France and Germany to be governed by a single authority. Now this was a big deal. This was just five years after the end of World War Two, and coal and steel were vital ingredients in being able to wage war. The idea was that if production of it was put under one authority, then there would be no need for the two sides to go to war with each other over those resources. Schumann's call was answered by Konrad Adenauer, the Chancellor of the new Federal Republic of Germany, more commonly known as West Germany. Following the end of World War II, there were two areas of Germany that were particularly contentious, and both of them bordered France. These were the Ruhr and the Saarland. The Ruhr was basically where all of Germany's steel was produced, and Saarland was rich in coal. As a condition for the formation of the Federal Republic of Germany, the steel industry in the Ruhr was placed under, under the control the International Authority for the Ruhr, which isn't the International Ruhr Authority because then it would share its initials with another organization, and and the Saarland became a French protectorate. Attempts to unify coal and steel production in France and West Germany resulted in the creation of the European Coal and Steel Community, or ECSC, which sounds like something you'd hear in a Manic Street preacher's song. On April the 18th, 1951, France and West Germany, together with Italy, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg, signed the Treaty of Paris. This created common markets for steel and coal throughout the member states. Internationally, it had some real clout, and it wasn't long before the ECSC set up shop in Washington, D.C., making it the European Coal and Steel Authority that did business with the USA. One thing that the ECSC did was alleviate the tensions between France and West Germany over the Ruhr and Saarland. Before, it was like a tug-of-war, with France going, we can't let you have them, you'll become too strong, and Germany going, no, we need them for our economy. With the ECSC set up, the International Authority for the Ruhr wasn't really needed anymore, and the ECSC took over its duties. So West Germany, as an active member of the ECSC, was pretty much in full control of the Ruhr. As for Saarland, in 1954, France and Germany came up with the Saarstrut, a plan that would make the Saarland an independent country. However, you've never heard of it, because this plan was put to a public vote in Saarland and it was rejected by 67.7%. Instead, it joined the Federal Republic of Germany on January 1st, 1957, in the last significant change in European borders until the fall of communism. Again, with coal production under a single authority, everyone was pretty cool with it. The higher authority that Schumann imagined to run the ECSC was founded in 1951 with the Frenchman Jean Monnet as president. Rather than being known as the high authority, it took on the name Commission, and it would eventually morph into the European Commission, the executive branch of the EU. Okay, I've got one last thing to say about the ECSC. I just have to make a comment on its flag, because it's an absolute chonk monster. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> So the top half of it was blue, for steel, and the bottom half was black, for coal. And it had a gold star for each member's, but the stars weren't piddly little ones. They took up the whole flag. So it just screamed, we deal with coal and steel, It was awesome.
1: I, I'm looking at it right now, and that is, that, that is such a stark flag. I love that. That is in your I, I might stick that for a for a band logo, to be honest. It's well, <laughs> although it was there a second version later on, because I'm I'm seeing two here where the one of them has got twelve smaller white stars.
0: Oh oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, they, they toned it down when they added new members. Uh the stars became white, they became much smaller, and yeah, it it the blue became lighter as well. Yeah. And it, and, and it just it just lacked the clout that that early design had. That, that's a, a shame. That's yeah. a design classic there, that original flag. It's the vexillological equivalent of being punched in the face. That first flag is great. So anyway, the ECSC was so successful that it formed the blueprint for European institutions that followed it. On March the 25th, 1957, the six founding members of the ECSC signed the Treaties of Rome, plural, which gave birth to two new institutions. The first was the European Atomic Energy Community, otherwise known as Euroatom. This was and remains a specialist market for nuclear power, which incidentally the UK is no longer a part of, despite not being obliged to leave it. Anyway, the second institution created by the Treaties of Rome was the European Economic Community, or EEC. This proposed the gradual phasing in of various European institutions that pretty much everyone in Western Europe has grown up with. The first one I want to talk about is the Customs Union. So this commits all members to the eventual elimination of customs charges between member states and common custom charges for goods coming from outside of those states. Bringing down tariffs and removing non-tariff barriers to trade is obviously great for members and sees costs come down and trade increase. If you're in it, why on earth would you want to leave it, eh? Related to the customs union, but very much distinct from it, is the single market. The aim of this was to establish the four freedoms, that is freedom of goods, freedom of capital freedom of services, and freedom of movement. That last one is particularly important because it means that if you can work in one member state, you can work in all of them. You're not limited to your own country. Again, the advantages of the European institutions are many, and I'll just go over a few examples. Say you export goods. Say you grow and ship bananas or something. Before the EEC, each country had its own rules. So if you were shipping bananas, you'd have to read up on each country's rules for importing bananas and follow them. So you'd go right these ones go to france so any boxes this big have this many bananas in a box pack them like this etc etc then you'd go okay these bananas are off to west germany not east germany obviously so i now need these boxes them like this blah, blah 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 so you can see how the costs for exporters rack up making the bananas more expensive with the advent of the eec the rules for exporting bananas to each member state are the same And you don't need all the different packaging boxes. You just need one box for the EEC. And this helps to bring prices down. Again, great idea. In a similar vein, say you're an electronics company in Japan and you've invented the latest must have gadget. You've got customers in Europe who can't wait to buy it. Thanks to the single market, the rules on safety of electronic goods are are the same. So you only have to modify your product for the rules of one market. Making that market very attractive to export to. So it's win-win for everyone. Over time, other European countries saw how well the EEC was working and the number of members of the EEC increased. However, this was not immediate. It was largely due to one man, Second World War hero and French President Charles de Gaulle. As great a man as de Gaulle was, he was the worst type of person, a nationalist. And what do nationalists believe? That their particular nation should be at the forefront of everything. The EEC, with its original members, suited de Gaulle down to the ground, as France was the most powerful nation in it. In 1961, the UK tried to join, how times change, along with Denmark, Ireland and Norway. De Gaulle was suspicious of the intent of the UK, and he saw British membership as a Trojan horse for American involvement, given how close Britain and the USA were. So he said not to all four countries joining, just vetoed everyone's attempts to join. The first new country to join in a rather limited way was Greece, who was granted observer status in 1961 before being kicked out in 1967 following a military coup. He kicked out for a very good reason, though.
1: OK, yeah. What no, sorry. I, I, was, I was premature with my laughter there, but no, I,
0: <laughs> I support that. Mm-hmm. So other countries tried to join, but were rejected for much more sensible reasons. Spain and Portugal submitted applications, but as democracy was a key ideal of the EEC, and Spain and Portugal were under the dictatorships of Franco and Salazar, they were rejected. de Gaulle resigned as president of France in 1969 and was replaced by George Pompidou, who the Pompidou is named after. The EEC became much more open to new members. In 1970, the Tory Ted Heath became the prime minister of the UK, and he was pretty close to Pompidou negotiated Britain's membership of the EEC and put it to a vote in Parliament in 1971. The Tory members were given a free vote, Labour were whipped to vote against it, and the Liberals voted for it. The bill passed with a majority of 112, easily clearing Parliament and paving the way for the UK to join the EEC, which it did, along with Ireland and Denmark on January 1st, 1973. And as you may remember, we talked about Norway in a previous episode, they put their membership to a referendum and it failed. So in 1974, there were two elections in the UK and they ended up in victory for the Labour Party, with Harold Wilson becoming Prime Minister. Then, just as now, views on Europe were split in both the Conservative and Labour parties. Labour wanted to renegotiate the terms of UK EEC membership on more socialist lines, and it promised to put these new terms to the electorate in a referendum. 1975 rolled around, and the Conservative Party had just made dead witch Margaret Thatcher their leader. The Labour Cabinet and the Tories led the campaign to remain in the EEC, while the usual suspects of Tony Benn and Paul Foot campaigned against it. The no campaign also included pretty much all of the nationalist parties, including Plaid Cymru and the Scottish National Party. Outside Parliament, the fringe parties of the National Front and the Communist Party also campaigned for no. In the end, the referendum was a decisive yes victory. Yes received over 17 million votes, while no got nearly eight and a half billion. So that result was clear cut and the UK's EEC membership was cemented. Throughout the 80s, the EEC expanded further. The military hunter in Greece came to an end in 1975, and they became a member on January 1st, 1981. So, you know, these things take time. After checking out their dictators, Spain and Portugal reapplied for membership, being granted it in 1986. A year later, Turkey officially applied to join, and that application is still under consideration to this day, even though Turkey is nowhere near meeting the entry criteria as it's currently occupying half of Cyprus, which is itself a member state. In 1984, Margaret Thatcher successfully negotiated a rebate from the EEC. Contributions of member states were calculated on their sales tax receipts, VAT as we call it, and at that point, 70% of the EEC budget was spent on the common agricultural policy. Seeing as the UK collected a lot of VAT and its agricultural sector was smaller than other member states, Thatcher argued that the UK contribution was disproportionately high. The other leaders agreed, and the rebate, worth billions a year, was negotiated at the Fontainebleau European Council meeting. Throughout the 80s, the community strengthened under the presidency of European Commissioner Jacques Delors, and as the world changed following the collapse of communism, the fall of the Berlin Wall and German reunification, the need arose to reform the European institutions and move towards monetary union. Thus, the Maastricht Treaty was born. Named after the Dutch city of Maastricht, the treaty did several things. Firstly, it established the euro, not as a currency that people could spend, but as a goal that could only be achieved through strict fiscal criteria. Originally called the European currency unit, or ECU, it wasn't given the rather flat name of the Euro until 1995. Second, it founded the European Union or EU and gave it its pillar structure. The European Economic Community had the economic bit taken from its name and it became the EC, representing the fact that it had become about much more than just economics. The two new pillars were a common foreign and security policy and cooperation in the fields of justice and home affairs. Although the treaty was signed by all members on February 7, 1992, the day after Homer alone was first aired, it then needed to be ratified. In the UK, ratification of the Maastricht Treaty almost brought down John Major's government. In amongst all the complicated wranglings, the Tory government had negotiated a British exemption from the so-called social chapter, which was the bit that dealt with employment law. Being the party of the workers, the Labour Party opposed this exemption. Also, there were still plenty of Tories in Parliament who opposed the Maastricht Treaty entirely, and they were dubbed the Maastricht Rebels. On the 22nd of July, the House debated the social chapter, with the government intending to not include it in their Maastricht ratification. Labour attempted to amend it, making it clear that the UK would adopt it. So Tories are trying to say, we don't want the social chapter. Labour is saying, we do want the social chapter. So the amendment that Labour proposed just completely flipped what the bill was trying to do. So after a heated debate that lasted well into the night, the results of the amendment were read out. The government position received 317 votes. The opposition, which was to adopt the social chapter, received 317 votes. Oh, it was high drama that night. This is all happening at about one in the morning as well. So in the event of a tie, the Speaker Betty bufroyd had to cast a vote to defend the government's position. Therefore, the amendment was rejected. As that's a very old convention, apparently, in the event of a tie, the speaker votes with the government. It was immediately followed by a vote on the social chapter itself. The government lost. 316 voted in favour of it with 324 against. It's a tiny majority, majority of eight, but the government still lost. And, you know, back then, the government losing a vote was a serious deal as opposed to 2019, where it was, you know, Tuesday. With the government defeated, it was widely expected that the government would ratify Maastricht anyway, as the only part of it where they didn't have explicit parliamentary approval was the social chapter. Instead, John Major shocked the country by announcing, straight after the votes, that the next day in Parliament would be given over to a vote of confidence in the government and their ability to deliver Maastricht, That was a real do-or-die card. He was basically calling a vote of confidence in himself. The next day he stated that if Parliament did not have confidence in the government's ability to deliver Maastricht, he would call a general election. So this is, you know, this is heavy stuff. That snapped a lot of the Tory rebels back into line, as the prospect of being responsible for a general election so soon after the one in 1992 was rather unpalatable. The gamble paid off. The House rejected Labour's amendment, and voted for the government's motion on Maastricht by 339 votes to 299. With all the drama in the UK Parliament, only three member states held referendums on Maastricht, as their constitutions required. The three referenda were held in the summer and autumn of 1992. In Ireland, it passed easily, winning 69.1% approval. In France, things were far closer, with ratification passing with a 50.8% yes vote causing commentators to dub it the Petit Oui from the French. In Denmark, things were very different. Their referendum on Maastricht ratification was held on June the second, 1992, and it was rejected with 50.7% voting no. So pretty small, but Denmark's got a much smaller population than France, so it's not as close as it would seem. This was a big spanner in the works, as the Maastricht Treaty could only come into effect if it was ratified by all member states. And the Danish result also signified the end of the concept of permissive consensus, which was the idea that people kind of agreed to European integration anyway, so just sort of get on with it. In December 1992, the European Council met in Edinburgh to discuss Danish objections. They agreed that Denmark could opt out of a huge chunk of Maastricht. They didn't have to partake in European citizenship, monetary union, or the defence policy. With the Danish opt-out secure, Denmark held another referendum on May the 18th, 1993. This time, the Maastricht Treaty, complete with all the opt-outs, was accepted with 56.7% voting for it. This meant that the Maastricht Treaty was put into effect and the EU officially came into existence on November the 1st, 1993. Now, of course, the EU would go on to become a major world power and it remains one to this day, despite Brexit. We'll definitely be revisiting it in future and I promise we will be back to it for Black Wednesday. Ooh,
1: to be continued. Mm-hmm. I remember loads of that so so very well. I remember I remember the ECU. Didn't remember it until you mentioned it, but I, I do <laughs> remember it. I, I thought that was a, a hell of a lot better as a name than the Euro. The Euro is just wimpy. it's, oh, it's, it's flat. Uh, it's but terrible. the ECU, it, it's peppy. It's peppy. It's got that hard, <laughs> that hard sort of sound in the middle you know it's uh yeah. it, it's it's action-packed yeah and Jacques Delors as well a, a name I'd a name I'd forgotten but it all came rushing back I remember watching all of that on the news at the time uh yeah. the government losing the vote the uh, vote of no confidence well the vote of confidence as it was in the end ah yeah I wonder whether I uh, remember more of that because it was it was sort of home related news as, as opposed to foreign news um mm. uh, because it's it's one of the main ones where where we've discussed it, where uh, I actually actually remember quite a bit. So uh, yeah, okay. Well, I'll I'll follow that with uh with interest. Wonder what happens in the end. <laughs> um, uh, this left me with the slight um, challenge of trying to find the European Union in um, in the Simpsons. Now. I'm not going to say that The Simpsons writers or creators themselves are kind of closed off to European happenings. But I will say that in general, I don't think American media really cares that much about the European Union. So there's, I can't find any specific mentions of note. Uh, and indeed, I needed uh, needed my colleague Tom to remind me that I could, uh, I could get out of this. I could weasel out, which is important for me to learn. By mentioning that in Season 9, Episode 20, The Trouble with Trillions, there is a depiction of Charles de Gaulle. He is the uh, the person, if I remember rightly, who um, suggests that all Europeans act snooty to Americans forever when Mr. Burns uh, steals the trillion dollar bill, which is meant to be of um, uh, financial stimulus to the post-war America.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 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 that, of course, is a, is a reference to the Marshall Plan. Uh, which which was uh, which, which was another example of wealth free distribution working for everyone, which yeah. which is which is a lot of what the European Union does with um, with the regional development funds. Because if you give money to poor people, they spend it. If you give money to rich people, they stick it in offshore accounts in the Cayman Islands. Oh crap! But just going back to the euro. It is such a boring name, But the prefix Euro itself is just so dull. I remember there used to be a show called the Friday night Armistice, also the Saturday Night Armistice. It was at one point and it and it starred Armando Inucci, Peter Baden, and David Schneider, who I think are all writers of Alan Partridge as well, so like comedy greats and they did they did a little test where they Got people to rate how exciting a word was before and after the adding of the prefix euro. So it's like tunnel, euro tunnel, hedge, euro hedge, cock, euro cock. <laughs> That is a problem with the prefix euro, it immediately makes something boring.
1: Oh, I absolutely loved that show, or those shows. I I, I didn't see much of a difference between the, the armistice, be it Friday or Saturday. But um, my overriding memory of it is when they were getting people to join the Conservative Party. Uh, <laughs> one, one was a man in his pants. He was he was accepted. Uh, and Darth Vader was accepted as a member of the Conservative
0: Party as well. Yes, um, I remember that. Fantastic stuff. Did they also have the busload of Diana's? Oh, I can't remember if that was them. They had Mr. Tony Blair,
1: oh, who, yeah. who
0: I remembered very fondly. He, he was like he was he was like a Humpty Dumpty doll, but they'd done it to look like Tony Blair. But of course, once he became Prime Minister, that sort of became kind of <laughs> inappropriate. <laughs>
1: uh, well, I guess before we get too nostalgic about. Uh, 90s comedy and and indeed the late 90s a time when things could only get better uh, (laughs) we'd we'd better wrap it up for uh, episode 50 thank you very much to all of our listeners for continuing to to stick with us but how do you keep Retrospecticus fresh and funny after 50 long episodes well here's what's on tap for the rest of season 3 magic powers wedding after wedding after wedding and did someone say long lost triplets (sighs) So, join me and Tom and a tiny green space alien named Osmodia that only Tom can see (laughs) on Stitcher, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcastofretrospectacus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. See you soon.
0: Cheers, everyone. Bye.
1: 자, <목소리> <목소리> <목소리>